Well, have any of you guys ever had a moment or an experience where you just knew you were completely out of place, like you did not belong? A couple of years ago, my husband and I had this experience. We, uh, like was just mentioned, we have two little girls, and a couple of years ago, they were just entering the princess awareness phase, and we lived 15 minutes away from Disneyland, so I saw all the stars lining up for us to have passes. So the day came, we finally put a date on the calendar, we we're gonna go ahead and take the plunge and get Disney passes and bring our girls, and I was so excited. I just remember waking up, I made coffee, I packed our lunches, and my poor husband even allowed us to listen to princess songs the entire 15 minute drive. So we got there and I was just loving it. And, uh, but I remember it feeling a little different than I had remembered. Uh, for one, there was a lot of red shirts, a lot of people wearing red, shirts, hats, accessories, and I just thought that it was like the families from out of state that are worried they're gonna lose each other, so they all wear like neon and they have their family's names so they can find each other. And I was just thinking in my head, wow, everyone decided to go red this year, that's weird. And then, you know, a couple minutes in to our, <laughs> our noticing the red shirts, we started noticing that a lot of the people wearing red were also homosexual couples and very publicly displaying affection. And again, my, my girls were little, but starting to be a little more observant and I just had that sinking feeling like, oh no, we just spent half of our life savings to come here for a year. Was it always like this? Do I, re I don't remember it being like this. And, and then sure enough, not too long after that, we started noticing uh, very flamboyantly dressed gentlemen entering the park and we realized and Google confirmed for us that the day we had decided to inaugurate our Disneyland family annual pass holding was Disney's gay day. So we knew that as time went on, we were probably going to start seeing more and more that we didn't want our girls to be aware of and we figured it was time to pack up and come back another day. So we packed up the stroller and we're pushing it down Main Street and for any of you moms that have passes, you feel my pain when you know how it feels to push a double stroller anywhere in Disneyland, let alone up Main Street on, you know, when people are still coming in. And that's what we did. We decided that we needed to separate ourselves from the celebration of the sexual immorality we saw around us and to go ahead and leave. And there was this clear moment in my mind as I'm struggling pushing this giant stroller, parting people coming in wearing red shirts on either side of us where it just dawned on me, isn't this how it's going to feel sometimes as Christians, as believers? So many times we're going to stand alone in situations where we don't agree with the lifestyle choices or people's view of gender or marriage or God. It's going to be difficult sometimes and it might be a struggle. And it's a struggle that I don't think anybody would understand better than our brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. They were very familiar with this kind of feeling alone, feeling awkwardly, painfully separate from the people around them. And Paul had some very specific instructions and encouragement for them that is so applicable for us today. How do we start? How do we know how to handle ourselves well, especially when it comes to sex or gender or, or how we control our bodies? How do we know what we're supposed to do or what honors God? It can be a huge topic and one that a lot of times we don't wanna touch, but that's exactly what our passage is going to lay out for us today. So if you haven't turned there already, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter four. We are going to read the first eight verses together and learn about what Paul has to say. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. 
For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality and that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and we solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul starts off right away with the word finally. He's letting us know he is switching gears. He's about to get into more specific, more practical teaching, and it's time for us to pay attention. And he actually grabs our attention with um, some pretty interesting wording. He says, finally, brothers, I ask and I urge. That word urge literally translates to beg or beseech. And it's interesting because it's the same word that's used in Mark 7, 26, when the Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. As moms and daughters ourselves, I'm sure we all can feel that weight, that level of, of begging. We want Jesus to do something. And it's that same word that Paul is using here to really try to get our attention. What he's about to say is life, life and death. It's, it's so important and we need to really stop and listen. So what is it that is so important that he's trying to get our attention before he hops in? It's this, this concept that we need to know how to walk to please God. We need to know how to walk to please God. I'm sure if we've been in church for any length of time, this is a teaching that we have heard. It's very familiar to us as believers, but we need to hear it again and again because we know that ultimately the goal of our life is to give God the glory that he deserves. And Paul knew that, but it was more than that. What Paul was saying here is the way that we walk, the way that we live our life to please God is indicative of our salvation. It proves the genuineness of our faith when we choose to walk to please God continually, that our whole life is now for him. This isn't a one-time moment where we decide that we believe in God and then we go about our business. Genuine believers know that when you come to Christ, everything changes. You're now walking to please him. And this starts the moment you repent and you put your trust and your faith in Christ. We know that as believers, there's a fundamental switch that happens in our mind. We know that now we live for him and not ourselves. Everything has changed. First Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says that we are not our own. We were bought with a price and we should honor God with our body. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, that Jesus paid the ransom that we owed and he didn't do it with silver or gold or anything else that perishes, but he did it with his own precious blood. Because of that, we owe him a life debt. Our whole existence now should be to honor and glorify this God who saved us from our sin. And he paid the price that we deserved. He died the death that should have been ours. When we repent, that's turning from our sin, turning from our old ways and really turning towards him. We choose to trust in his righteousness and not in our own. We know we bring nothing to the table. He is the one who lived the righteous life and he is the one who will save us if our trust and our confidence is in him. This is the gospel that Paul preached to the Thessalonians and that they received. 
We know that in chapter two, verse 13, that they accepted it for what it really was. Not men's teaching, but the word of God. This is the gospel that they were responding to. And this is the gospel that Paul is telling us that we need to receive and we need to respond to as well. Our life should be overflowing with gratitude for this God that rescued us. He rescued us from our helpless position. And now there's nothing that he will ask from us that will be too much. Our desire should be to please him and honor him and to do so more and more and more. The phrase more and more that Paul uses in verse one is actually one word. In Greek, it's perisuente, and it literally means progress. And I love that word, progress. It's something that we should be doing more and more and more. It never stops. This progression and sanctification begins when we come to Christ and it never stops until we see him. And what I love about this word too, it was interesting when I was looking at the text that if you look at verse one, do you see where he says the teaching that you've received? And then again in verse two, you know what instructions we gave you? It's interesting that this command to walk to please God and to keep doing so more and more is sandwiched in between two references to the teaching that they had received. The gospel was to inform their actions. They were to live and act directly in response to what they were taught and what they knew to be true. And the same is true for us today. As recipients of God's life-changing grace, people who understand the gospel and love the truth, we can't just sit content with our status as being made redeemed, made righteous before God. We need to respond by giving Christ our life and by pursuing him with everything we've got to do so more and more. And that's how I'd like to write it for our first point. We need to resolve to progress in holiness. Resolve to progress in holiness. I don't know if you've ever had a moment where you were painfully aware that you needed to make progress in a certain area. Um, I remember this moment. Uh, a couple years after my daughter was born, I was talking with a friend of mine and we were walking up a flight of stairs. We was at our last church and we were just chatting and by the time we got to the top of the stairs, I was noticeably winded. I couldn't even continue the conversation and it was super clear at that point that someone was out of shape. And what made this whole situation worse is that I was holding my donut, that I was really excited about eating when I got to the room. So my friend was actually a, a fitness guru and she was great. She knew that I'm not much of a gym person and so she let me borrow this DVD workout program to use at home. And I love that idea. There's no trainer in my living room yelling at me and no friend like my friend who's very in, much in shape that would make me feel awkward. I liked the thought of being all by myself. And so I put this DVD workout in in the mornings and this little slogan would come up, decide, commit, succeed. And it was very inspiring as I'm tying my shoelaces, you know. But it was funny because the DVD program actually understood something pretty important. If you buy this DVD and you don't do anything with it, you're never going to see results. If you put the DVD in the player and you're not committed to actually pushing through when it gets hard, you will not lose 10 pounds or whatever is the promise, you know? And it's funny, uh, I had this, again, just like embarrassing moment time, but I, uh, I'm not very coordinated and there's this one specific move that you have to do in the DVD and I kept tripping. So I just told myself, this is ridiculous. I'm just gonna sit and watch them do it so that I can do it. And I grabbed my ice cream and I sat and I watched them do it. And my husband walked in the door at this moment and I was totally caught red-handed. It was just really hard to explain. But isn't it true 
that to start exercising, if you want to see progress in your body, you have to actually commit. Not just decide you're going to do it, but you're gonna have to commit that it's going to start hurting at some point, and that's when you remind yourself what you're doing this for. And it's almost like Paul is doing the same thing with our friends, the Thessalonians. He could have just jumped right into instructions and said, here's what you need to do, but he didn't. He prefaces what he's about to tell them they need to do with helping them understand how important it is to get their mind right, to know why they're doing what they're doing, why it's important to commit and stick in there even when it gets hard, because it will be hard. Sometimes obedience is going to be hard and it's not going to be fun. And remembering the gospel, remembering that Christ has changed our life and that we now live for him and not ourselves is what we need when it's going to get tough, which it will. If we're going to be serious about progressing in holiness, it's really done in two very specific ways. One, we need to keep our minds focused on God's word. We've got to keep our minds focused on God's word which means we actually need to know what God's word says. We need to be reading our Bibles and we need to be reading our Bibles every day. We need to make God's word a priority in our life, not just to read to check the box so that we feel like we've done a good job, but to really pursue listening to what God is saying to us and we know he speaks to us through his word. There are so many ways to jump in. If you're not sure where to start, the daily Bible reading is a great way to jump in. Every single day, there's the the Compass app on your phone or Focal Point, you can click a button and the Bible reading pops up. And I know so many of us are doing that, which is awesome. Let's keep going. Let's be women who study God's word too. Let's delve into the questions in our women's Bible study. Let's be women who ask for logos for Christmas. Let's be the kind of women who are serious about learning and knowing and loving God's word because we know it transforms our mind. And secondly, we need to actively choose to obey what God's word says. Again, it's, it's one thing to know it and another to never do anything about it. We need to be serious about obeying God's word, knowing that sometimes it's going to hurt. Sometimes it's not gonna be fun. We're gonna have to stick in there and choose to commit to do it. Sometimes we might feel like we're the only one surrounded by a whole bunch of people wearing red, but we need to commit to obeying what God's word says. Our actions should speak volumes about what we believe. If our coworkers and friends or family members don't know that we're Christians, we need to really evaluate how well we know God's word and how well we're really obeying it. And one way to be serious about obeying God's word, about taking this commitment seriously, is to be accountable to another person. Do you have another believer, another believing woman in your life that you meet with regularly, where you are able to confess sin to and pray with and ask for accountability to stay away from places where you know you you struggle with falling into sin? Accountability is a must for every believer who's serious about really committing to obeying God's word. We know that God's word changes our minds. And when our minds are changed, we're thinking on God's truth, we act differently, that our whole life changes. And we see this again in verse three. Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Immediately following such this urgent plea for us to listen, pay attention, this is important. He follows that up with this really direct statement. Do we wanna know how to please this God that we ought to be walking to please more and more? What does he want? What makes him happy? This is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain means to completely stay away, flee, run, go the other direction from sexual immorality. And sexual immorality here is the word porneia in Greek, which we get our English word pornography from. 
And it's a really, really broad word that encompasses a whole host of activities that are outside of God's plan. One way to look at it really simply is, Pornea is anything outside of what God created. And God created marriage to be one man and one woman in a covenant relationship in marriage. That is the only place where sex is to be used as and to be good. Anything outside that falls in the category of pornea. And pornea can include everything from sexual uh, misconduct to premarital sex, to adultery, to homosexuality, to incest, to orgies, to bestiality, the list goes on, right? It's not a good list. We don't want to be characterized by that list. And as Christians, we are to have absolutely nothing to do with immorality. The Thessalonians would have been very, very familiar with that list. As, uh, as citizens of Thessalonica in the ancient world, they would have seen this quite frequently. Thessalonica was the capital city of, of Macedonia. It was a port city and I've never actually been to New York, but I picture it as the New York of the ancient world. It was right on the harbor and as such, it was this melting pot, so to speak, of all different kinds of people and religions and all kinds of stuff going on. So people's view of sex was was all over the place, very rampant, very acceptable, really. Thessalonica was known for accepting and tolerating uh, sexual license and freedom. One of the most popular things was the uh, temple prostitution, which I'm sure you guys have heard of. It was very common, and it was actually encouraged that men would go to the temple, have sex with the prostitutes that worked there, and in so doing, they were both worshiping fertility itself and they were increasing their own personal fertility. It was totally acceptable for men to have concubines. A concubine was a slave whose sole function was to be available to meet her master's sexual urges. The fun job, right? And on top of that, it was completely uncalled for for a wife to have any problem with either prostitution or any concubine so long as illegitimate children were not born. Wives were not given license to be upset with their husbands for this. In addition to that, young people in Thessalonica were really encouraged to explore their passions and pleasures and get it out of their system, so to speak, so that they could settle down and be a helpful part of society um, and they could calm down a bit. Does that sound so familiar? It sounds pretty, pretty similar to our culture, doesn't it? Get it out of your system when you're young, just have a little pleasure, it's okay. The Thessalonians might've wondered why when they came to Christ, this kind of pleasure or sexual activity was condemned or forbidden by Christianity, by Paul, because every other religion said it was fine and the people around them were fine with it. It was probably a very stark contrast from the world that they lived in. And the same will be true for us. When I was preparing this message, I was thinking about the word abstinence and what our culture, what our friends, our coworkers, the people around us think of when they hear that word. So I do what I always do when I have a question and I Googled it. And this is the first definition that came up. Get ready, thank you Planned Parenthood. Sexual abstinence is when you don't have sex. Outer course is other sexual activities besides vaginal sex. Sexual abstinence and outer course can mean different things to different people. So clear, isn't it? 
Well, in a culture like ours where absolute truth is certainly not popular, especially when it comes to anything sexual, Christians need to have a very different, different, different definition of abstinence. And that is that we completely refrain, we completely stay away from not just any action, but any conversation, any thought that is contrary to what we know God has set up. And the area of sex is to be good between one man, one woman in a covenant of marriage. We need to run avoid, stay away from any sexual immorality. And we do that by running the opposite direction. And that's how I wanna state our second point. We need to relentlessly pursue sexual purity. Relentlessly pursue sexual purity. It's one thing to pursue something and it's another thing to be relentless. And uh, I was trying to think of a way to explain what I mean by the word relentless. And as silly as it is, this is the one thing that kept coming to my mind. And so I hope you'll bear with me and I hopefully it will illustrate this word relentless for you. Um, when I was in college, I used to come home on the weekends. My husband and I were interns in our youth group together. And so I come home on the weekends and work in church and I tried to get home early enough on Fridays to go pick up my little sister from school. She was in elementary school when I was in college. So that's when it was cool to be so much older than her. So one week I decided to go get her. I got home early enough to pick her up from school and I decided I'm gonna walk my dog with me. Uh, my family's dog, his name was Thor and he weighed in between 120, 130 pounds and was just, he was massive. He was huge and obnoxious and awesome. I loved this dog. And so I took him with me and we walked up to go get my sister and Right about the time I see my sister and we have that sweet little moment where we're waving to each other, uh, Thor sees the little boy directly behind her and this poor little guy pulls out a Ziploc bag of Oreos. And before I knew what was happening, Thor sees the Oreos and goes. And we were full steam ahead for the Oreos and he knocked my sister down, he weaved through the teachers and he had me pulling on him with all of my might and he runs to this little boy and eats all of the Oreos, bag and all, right out of his hand. And I was totally embarrassed. I couldn't believe that just happened. And you know, moms are yelling and rightfully so. And that was the last time Thor ever went to school with me. But when I think about that term relentless, I think about that tenacity that Thor had. He saw the Oreos, therein is the goal. I'm getting to the Oreos and nothing will stop me. He could not be deterred. And that is the picture I'm trying to communicate with. We need to pursue sexual purity that way, with that kind of passion and excitement and tenacity. We need to go for it. We want to desire to be pure to our God that we love, and we want to be completely relentless. We know the world is going to throw things in our way. We're going to face opposition. We're going to get pulled on. We're going to have opposition come up on all these different angles. Our friends might not understand. Our family might not understand. We might get mocked and ridiculed, but we have to be relentless in our pursuit of sexual purity. We have to want to please God and we have to want to be pure. So to want to be pure is one thing, but what does that actually mean? How do we actually live out this call to be sexually pure? Well, the text actually lays that out for us. Let's keep reading in verse four. It says that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord... He's the avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. 
I wanna take a quick minute to address a different interpretation you might have heard with this verse, as I had heard it taught once, that some will say this is actually saying that husbands are to control their wives, that this section is only talking to men and their wives. And that's because the word body here is the Greek word skuos, and it's also used in 1 Peter 3, 7, where Peter says the wife is the weaker vessel, the weaker skuos. So some have said, well, this must mean it's talking about wives. But that wouldn't make sense in the context here because Paul has been addressing the Thessalonians as a whole, and nowhere else in scripture are our husbands to be in control of their, their wives' sexual activities, right? This is, this is clearly directed at all of us as a whole. And so we th- think the ESV translates as well, that each one of us is to know how to control our own body in holiness and honor. The direct comparison here was with the Gentiles who don't know God. The Gentiles, the people who didn't believe in God, they made it clear they didn't believe in God by the way they lived. Christians were to do the exact opposite. They should make it clear that they know God and love God because their lives look different. They made it clear by their actions. One commentator said, Christians should be dominated by holiness. I thought that was a a great way to say it. Christians should be dominated by holiness. Sexual purity requires that we are in control of our own body. We have mastery over our own body. And that's not a popular opinion in our world today. In fact, the world now will tell us that our sexual urge is nothing more than physical. And if you don't meet your physical urges, it could be detrimental to your health. It could be detrimental to your mental state. You need to take care of your bodily urges. Healthline Magazine recently said this, Many scientists and psychologists now believe that desire is in fact a bodily urge, more similar to hunger. In many ways, we cannot control what we desire. Ladies, we do know how to control other bodily urges, do we not? I assume that we've all had to skip a meal at one point in our life against our wishes and we all lived to tell the tale. In fact, we probably enjoyed dinner so much more than we would have if we were less hungry. And just because we want something really badly, like lust is that word, the strong desire, you want it bad. Just because you want something badly doesn't mean that you give it to yourself. Um, (laughs) This is also embarrassing. I'm just telling you all my embarrassing things apparently. We had a sweet gift this week. Uh, Someone gave us the nothing bunt cakes that are so good. And I love those things. And clearly have no self-control because I had cake for breakfast and lunch and dinner for, it was like two or three days straight in a row. And when it came time to eat, my desire for cake won out over my desire for scrambled eggs or whatever else I was making. But I know that if I tell myself, just because I strongly am craving cake, I still need to eat real food. In fact, if I ate nothing but cake and I did that for years, I'd probably actually die. It would kill me if I just let myself eat whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted it. Just because we want something and we want it bad doesn't mean that it's good for us or that we should give in to our our own desires and lusts. We have to use our body to glorify God. Our body is a tool in God's hands and we need to offer it to him to be useful to him. And we need to be careful not to transgress and wrong our brother in this matter. The word transgress literally means to step over the line, to go outside the prescribed boundaries, so to speak. And God has made it crystal clear where that line is. He's drawn the line in the sand very deeply, so to speak. Sex is only okay in the bounds of marriage, as we know. And when we choose to sin, we cross that line that God has drawn. And we need to remember that sexual sin just by nature involves more than just ourselves, doesn't it? 
We are choosing either to sin with or against someone when we are engaging in sexual sin. And God has warned us, solemnly warned us, that when we do this, he will avenge it. We might not see consequences right away, but that shouldn't mean that we don't fear God's judgment here. We will stand before him and we will give an account for every action. That should be a strong warning so that we know we can't make excuses in our own hearts. We have to evaluate the way that we interact with our brothers. And I'm sure, especially if you've been in youth group growing up as a kid, the first thing that probably is coming in your mind right now is modesty. How do you dress your body? Do you present yourself in a respectable way? Do you carry yourself well? This is more than just the way we dress, isn't it? It's the way we carry ourselves. It's the way we interact with our brothers. Do we dominate conversations just so the attention's on ourselves? Are we overly flirty? Do we pose our bodies in certain ways or dress ourselves in certain ways that we are attracting sexual attention? And this carries into social media as well. Are we holding the camera just high enough to we're getting the perfect shot of our cleavage before we post that picture on Instagram? This is an all-encompassing way of how we present ourselves should be honorable and respectable. When we cause our brothers to think a thought that is sexual, we're crossing that line and we need to be very, very careful. What would happen if before we did anything on social media, we really asked ourselves, what am I saying here? What does this caption mean? What am I hoping to do with this picture? And hear me out, I am not saying that we should all just start posting unflattering pictures of ourselves and no more selfies. That's, that's not what I'm saying, but I am asking us to really check our motives. How we deal with our brothers is really important and we need to be careful. If we're not married, then the, it might sound harsh, but we have to know that God has said that sex is only allowed in a marriage relationship. If you are not married, sex is not for you. It's inappropriate if you are engaging in sexual behavior. And again, to counter what Planned Parenthood said, it's, it doesn't need to be very specific, does it? We know when we are crossing the line. I've heard some believers say that it's not really sin unless it's sex. That leaves a huge gray area to a whole host of activities that fall outside of that, but we still know are wrong. We need to be very real with ourselves and check our motives and be actually honest with what we see in our own hearts. God is not looking for us to obey him by technicality. He's looking for your whole heart. And there's a difference between showing affection and purposely arousing sexual desire. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves as women, we know where that is. Let's be willing to put God's desires in front of our own. Now, what if we were married? This call to pursue sexual purity is just as applicable to us who are married as it is to those who are single. In fact, if you are a married woman and you're trying to identify who your brother is, your husband should be the first person that comes to your mind. We know that as believers, we are no longer our own. We live now to walk to please God, we're his. But if you are a married woman, it's even one step more than that. You are not your own, you are your husband's. Your body belongs to your husband, first and foremost. 1 Corinthians 7, four through five says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
Wives, we must choose to joyfully and willingly and regularly give ourselves to our husbands sexually. And it needs to be done because we love our husbands. We're putting his needs above our own. And we love him and we want his own battle for holiness to be one that is successful. Let's do everything in our power to take away the stumbling blocks and the temptations that are going to come at him from all sides in the world that we live in. Let's be his best support. Let's be the helper that we need to be by helping him in his battle for holiness. Let's not starve him of the affection that he has vowed to get only from us. And this might mean we need to make some pretty practical changes. This might mean that we need to make date night an actual priority. This happens regularly so that our relationship is strong and we want to give ourselves to our husband. This might mean we rearrange our schedules so that we have time to rest, so that we have energy for our husbands. It might even be something as simple as mom gets a really big cup of coffee at dinner. Something we can do practically to keep ourselves awake and show love to our husbands. Controlling our body and, and holiness and honor really does start in our mind, doesn't it? And every single person in this room, whether we are single, whether we are married, younger, older, whatever, we are all called to pursue holiness in our mind. And this is serious. We need to think about what we're putting into our mind. We should be putting scripture into our mind and we should also be running away from things that would be putting sinful thoughts into our mind. Are we watching Netflix movies that fuel our fantasies? Are we entertaining thoughts of a man that's married that we know we shouldn't? What about wishing our husband was more like another man or entertaining thoughts that lead us down a path we know we shouldn't take? We need to be serious with keeping our minds focused on Christ and surrendering our mind to him, taking every thought captive. We also must consider others as more important than ourselves. Philippians 2, 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. It's not an excuse for sexual sin if it's mutual or if it's for the sake of expressing love, like it said in our homework this week. Ladies, there is one love that should trump all other loves, and that love is Jesus Christ. And he is crystal clear what loving him looks like. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And his commandment, is abstain from sexual immorality. Now, in a group this size, there may be some thinking, great, I've blown it already, so I'm checking out at this point. Who cares, I'm done. Or maybe you've been dating a guy and it's been sexual for a really long time and you know you need to break it off, but you're afraid because it's gonna hurt. Or maybe you haven't had sex with your husband in a really long time and just when it comes right down to it, you just don't want to. And it's easier to put your needs in front of his own. Ladies, God is calling us to holiness. He's asking, he's urging, he's calling us to holiness. And now is the time to repent and turn. It's not too late. It's time to make a fresh start. It might hurt to break off a relationship we know is sin that is sinful. It might be hard to make a new pattern, to have new priorities and to have new habits, but we have to do it. We have to be relentless about pursuing purity because we love our God who saved us. Maybe you're getting tired of all the pressure. Does everything have to be such a big deal? Is everything a sin? I remember in college, I had a, um, a friend, I have no idea what the context was or why he asked this, but he asked my professor, does everything have to be a sin? And my professor looked at him like he was an idiot and just said, sin is not a pesky mosquito. It is a dangerous killer and he's coming for you. And I love the way he answered that because we need to be really real 
about sin. Sometimes we talk about it like it's this outside force that we're the victim of or we're just struggling through it. But really sometimes to look at our own hearts that are deceptively, deceptively wicked above all else and pinpoint what we find there, that's hard. That's hard to look at our own thoughts, our own motives, our own sinful desires, to nip them in the bud, to surrender them to Christ the second we see them because we know that sin is dangerous and it's deadly. And it reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 28 through 30. He said, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman or a man in our context with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his own heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members that your whole body be thrown into hell. Sexual sin is a serious offense to God. We need to be zealous for finding it and killing it the second we see it appear. This might sound difficult. It might sound like a very uphill battle, but we need to remember, ladies, we can be encouraged. God has given us everything we need for victory in this. He promises us victory. He will be with us. If we've sinned, if we've messed up, it's not too late. Now is the time to repent and turn to Christ and start pursuing what he has called us to, and that's holiness. That's what we get in verses seven and eight. It says, for God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Verse three told us that this is the will of God, and here we see that God is calling us to holiness. It's his desire for us to be holy, and that should do something in our hearts that we want to respond to him. In our daily Bible reading a few days ago, uh, we read Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, which says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God's spirit literally prompts us to do what is right and what is best. When we come to Christ, remember what we just talked about in 1 Corinthians 5.21? Christ became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. He imputes his righteousness to us. He declares us holy. He has given us what we need. He's asking us to continue in that. He's declared us holy. He's given us his spirit. He promises us his help. When we choose to completely ignore our convictions that we know are wrong, when we choose to obey the passions of our own flesh instead of obeying his spirit that is prompting us, we are deliberately disregarding God and refusing his help. That makes our sexual sin inexcusable and it should be a real warning in our hearts. We need to obey the spirit of God and not our own passions. He's promised to help us. It really is amazing that, like Ezekiel says, he empowers us, he's with us, he'll help us. We're not alone in this, it's not impossible. We don't have the right to throw the towel in and give up. He's with us, he'll help. We need to remember that we need to be asking God to help us grow in holiness. We need to be committed to it. And we need to do this for the rest of our life. We can do this joyfully because holiness is not only what God is calling us to, but it's also the status he's already given us. This is our identity now. We are holy. And that should really cause us to stop and, and be inspired to thank God for what he's done. And that's how I wanna write it for our final point. 
We need to revel in our holy status. Revel in your holy status. Did you know the word revel means to enjoy yourself in a noisy and lively way? I didn't. Uh, And so I thought that was actually kind of interesting because when you're enjoying yourself like that, you tend to attract attention to yourself. And that's always been the way that God has set it up. God's desire for holiness has always been connected to his desire for his people to represent him well. That was his desire for Israel. They were to be holy like he was holy and he placed them right in the middle of a whole bunch of nations who did not honor God. They didn't do so well, but the nations were meant to wonder why they were different. The same is true for us, the church today. We are in the middle of a culture that doesn't think like we do, doesn't see God the way we do, doesn't believe like we do. The people around us are meant to see our life and wonder what is different, wonder why. But is that actually really the case? Usually it's not. Our holy lives should be shouting from the rooftops that there is a better way, that there is a good God who is inviting them to come and trade their empty passions that lead to death for his perfect righteousness that offers life. What would happen if Christians had the most robust, most life-giving, awesome marriages of anyone we knew? What would that say to the world around us? What would our kids think if they see mom and dad showing affection to each other and loving each other and they know for sure that God's good gift for marriage is so good that they don't need to look to the world for anything better. They see it works. What would happen if our single friends saw us not go to the same places, not date the same way, not do the same things because we actually really believed that God's ways were better and they were worth waiting for. It wasn't just something we said, it was how we lived. That would be radical, wouldn't it? Wouldn't the world think something was different? Wouldn't they wonder why? That's what we're to do. The world is broken and lost and we know that and there's perhaps no better spokesman for such a twisted, sad world um, than Hugh Hefner who passed away a couple years ago. He talked a lot about what led him down his you know, di- downward spiral of sexual activity and in a moment of honesty, he actually said this about his childhood. He said, I didn't want to repeat my parents' life. I saw in their lives a routine and a lack of dreaming, a lack of possibilities and a lack of passion. And I didn't want to live without passion. There was no hugging and kissing in my home. Wow, his empty search was to go the opposite direction. He filled his life with meaningless sex. He even called that his religion. Ladies, he is permanently separated from God in hell. His search led him to eternal damnation and it should break our hearts. God has saved us out of this. We don't have to settle for this kind of empty way of life. God is offering us a more fulfilling, more robust way of living. It's worth waiting for, it's worth celebrating, and it's right there for us if we're willing to confess our sin and follow him, to walk to please him, to do it more and more and not give up. That is my prayer that each of us would really be convicted and encouraged and excited to pursue our great God with holiness and to do it more and more and more. Let's pray. God, how can we thank you? How can we thank you for doing what we could never do? For dying in our place, for paying the price for our sins and for declaring us holy because you are holy. You lived the perfect life, you did what we couldn't. Thank you, Lord, for making a way for us to be with you that you gave of your own self and that you're calling us to follow you. Help us to do it, Lord, even when it's hard, even when it hurts. 
Help us to remember what we've been saved from and to let the gratitude of what you've done change us forever. Lord, if there are women in this room who don't know you, I beg you, God, that you would draw them to yourselves, that they would realize their need for you, God, that in all the world, there's all the things we could search for that will leave us empty and broken. You're the only way. And I also pray, Lord, for those of us who do know you, whether we are married or single, that you would continue to inspire us to do what is right, that you give us the courage to face the people who think we're crazy, that you give us the resolve to stick in there when it's hard, that we would fight temptation, that we would have victory, and that when we fall, we are quick to repent and keep going, God. Help us not throw the towel in. Help us to think about who you are, how awesome you are, and to respond to you rightly. We love you, Lord, with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our bodies. We pray that you get the glory today in every word that comes out of our mouth, and that as we leave this place, we're more excited to live our life for you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>